Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to BibleQuest, the Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. Uh, so today we have uh, with us Scott Smelser. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing well. Good to see you. Uh, Dan Bunting is with us also. How are you, Dan? I'm all right. I'm all right. Good. And Justin Dobbs. How are you, Justin? I'm doing well, thank God. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing well. Doing well. All right, cool. Uh, so, Justin, I think uh, you're going to get us started on our discussion today. Where are we going? Where are we going? That is an interesting question. You know, a few weeks ago, we uh, had some discussion about the judgment of God. Uh, and really, it was the return of Jesus, I think, was uh, the, the primary topic. And based on that discussion, we had somebody write in the question, what are we going to be doing in heaven? And I think Dan and I got to talking afterward, we should probably respond to the inverse of that, which is what what would we be doing in hell? Uh, and hopefully we're not talking about ourselves, but that is um, that is the concern, right? Um, so what are what are we gonna be doing? What What is hell like? Is it like, what is it? What does the Bible say about it? Um, so I'd like for us to look at a few passages today. Luke 12 is where I have my Bible open to begin with. Um, there's, there's a number of scriptures about hell. Um, and so I guess you could say this is not just where we're going in our discussion, where we're not going, hopefully is what we're talking about. Thanks, Scott, <laughs> where we're not going. Yeah. Um, Jesus talked more about hell than any uh, other Bible writer, uh, yeah. any Bible writer. He also talked more about hell than all of the rest of them put together. Uh, so it's not just that Jesus talked more about it than Isaiah or David or Moses, like you, you put all the other Bible writers and teachers together and Jesus, Jesus talked a lot about hell. Yeah. Um, and, and that might surprise us, um, except that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. And if he's the king of heaven, then he's also the judge. And so there's uh, a concern for righteousness. There's a concern for uh, fairness and protecting the, the poor and the weak and the needy and giving uh, a fair answer to, to evildoers. And so what does that look like? In Luke chapter 12, interestingly, in a passage that is meant to be comforting, Luke 12 and verse 4, uh, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Uh, it, it's a passage that teaches us not to be anxious, not to worry. Um, and so here's somebody who's struggling with anxiety, fear, and Jesus decides to preach to them about hell. Uh, it's the strangest sort of teaching but Jesus inserts this truth about judgment in order to comfort. Um, this is a real comfort. This isn't a pie in the sky. I kind of hope that you feel better, have a better day tomorrow kind of thing. Uh, Jesus uses real truthful statements about morality and justice and, and comforts people with it. Uh, but he teaches that in verse five, God does have authority to cast into hell. And the proper response is to fear him. And we might have a lot of questions about that, uh, but Jesus was very plain. God is going to throw people into hell for judgment. And even the righteous, even those who would take comfort from God should have the response to fear this God. Um, so 
I don't know, there's a lot of other passages to consider, but that's kind of where we want to start here. Dan, what do you have some thoughts? It just makes me think about, in, in the context of, of when Jesus said this, the people that he was talking to, uh, the reality of, of something like hell, whatever the name would be in the different cultures, was something that I think everyone believed in. And yeah. what was important was to know that the judge who was in charge of that has a heart that cares for little birds as well as us. Good. In, in our culture, um, there's been so much of an emphasis on removing God from the picture or only seeing God as, as, a, as a little softy, that now hell is the imaginary thing, and it's not the given. It's not the, uh, the thing that, that everyone knows. There's got to be some sort of hell, whatever your religion may be. And so I think that that's why it, it doesn't sound as comforting to us today. I, I like what you're saying. That's, that's really true. It's, it seems jarring to have a discussion about hell in the middle of comfort. But if we are, um, if, if I believe that there is a hell, I want to know not necessarily more about hell. I want to know more about the one uh, who is going to judge me and, and rule over me and possibly send me there. So the details about hell are less important than the details about um, the one that I must revere and fear. And so I think that's where the source of comfort comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Scott? Yeah, I don't know if this is worth inserting or not, but I went ahead and raised my finger, so I'm sort of, I saw a quote a few years ago, it was an actor, um, fairly young actor, and he was quoting his wife or girlfriend as saying, I don't know if there's a heaven, but there's got to be a hell, which I thought was just an interesting observation, but coming back to that idea, of given not everybody believes in it, but there's, there, there is a consciousness and a sense among people uh, about our guilt, even in a society today where the message is constantly, constantly, don't feel guilty about anything, mm -hmm. uh, don't feel bad about anything. Mm -hmm. We still have a world that is very guilty and often feels very guilty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and part of that may be um, we feel guilt, but we also see people doing things that are subjectively worse than what we're doing. True. And so I've been victimized. I have friends, neighbors, relatives who've been victimized. And the people who did it got away with it. Mm -hmm. and, and we are frustrated. Uh, we feel vulnerable and weak. And we want someone to come and make it right. And I think traditionally, and also just throughout the scriptures, hell and judgment is meant to be a comfort to the righteous. Um, you'll, you'll read imprecations in the Psalms um, where the righteous are admitting, I don't have it all together either. Uh, God have mercy on me. But one of the ways they're calling on God to have mercy is by judging the wicked. These people are oppressing me. They're hurting me. They are taking advantage of weak people, make them weak. And so give them what is due. And so, you know, there are a number of passages in the New Testament where Jesus just kind of with a finality teaches that's what's going to happen in, in john chapter 5 i want to look at another passage where jesus is teaching about this sort of thing in john 5 uh in verse 25 we may have looked at this passage um a few weeks ago when we looked at the return of jesus but in verse 25 uh, 
Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The, the word hell is not here, but the concept is here. And Jesus says, you know, if you've done evil, there, you're, you're going to be raised up, and you're going to be judged for this. A uh, number of other passages in Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about, um, if you call your brother fool, um, then you're liable to the, the hell of fire, hell of judgment, Gehenna. Um, Matthew uh, 25, um, there's just, there's so many that teach this sort of thing where Jesus says, this is going to happen at an hour. Everyone's going to hear my voice and there will be a judgment. It's inescapable. So one of the things that I've, I've tried to do in talking with people is I've gone to defend the idea of hell. There's sort of the uh, moral reasoning. How could a good God send people to hell? But I think before we do that, we have to just look at the passages and ask ourselves, is hell something the Bible teaches is, is going to happen? Mm-hmm. And I don't need to understand it necessarily. It, it's just plain that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there some other passages that you guys think of when you think about these passages teach us that hell is going to be a reality one day? Dan? But one easy one where it shows up twice is in Matthew chapter 13. It's, it's part of the conclusion to two of the parables. And uh, the first is in the parable of the, the weeds or the parable of the tares. And when he explains that parable, he, he tells the parable in verses 24 through 30, and he explains it in verses 37 through 43. I'm going to jump into verse 41. Um, it, they've, they've gathered the wheat and they've gathered in the weeds. And in verse 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, The weeds that grew up, they weren't supposed to be there. They weren't supposed to be a part of that field. And then they're taken out and they're separated and they are put into into the appropriate place. Um, the appropriate idea, and and even um, you 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 don't want to let those uh, weeds seed the field again the next year. Uh, you can't just let them lay in the grass because the the wind will blow the seeds. So even just in the very practical sense of farming, you want to burn that up. You want to put that in the trash so that it won't affect the next season. And so um, I think in that that literal sense of the way they would they would handle it, it makes sense. Uh, talking about that judgment. And in the same chapter, verses 47 through 50, just another short little parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven, he also has to describe what is not in the kingdom of heaven. 
Right. So he's right. putting a wall around the kingdom in a lot of ways. This is everyone inside the kingdom, but he also helps us understand, well, what's on the outside of that kingdom? On the outside of that kingdom is the opposite. If the kingdom is the presence of God, if the kingdom is the light and shining that we read about back in verse 43, then the outside of that kingdom is going to be the absence of God. It's going to be dark. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be, as he describes it, fire, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. And it doesn't have to be literal, but the image and the feeling of, you know, what is the mood or, you know, what's the vibe you get when you hear it's going to be eternal fire. It's going to be eternal sorrow. That is what Jesus is trying to say um, is the other alternative. You can be in the kingdom or you can be outside the kingdom and outside the kingdom is this judgment. Jonathan? There's a, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, um, that's important to realize that the alternative is, is weeping, it's fire, it's pain, it's torment, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I, I've talked to a number of people and I don't know, maybe some of them are serious, maybe some of them just kind of lightheartedly are joking either way. Um, they're in the wrong of kind of having this idea that hell is going to be this place where uh, I go and like, uh, you know, the devil and me are sitting on the couch together and we got our feet up on the coffee table and, you know, we're playing poker or, or whatever. And we're just kind of laughing for the rest of time. And I'm hanging out with, with Satan in, in his place, you know, kind of thing. Um, but it's important to realize that Satan doesn't want to go to hell either. Um, and in fact, Satan is prepared for hell. And Jesus would say that in Matthew chapter 25, um, one of the passages that we read uh, about the second coming of Jesus, which is really similar to the two parables that, that Dan just read, where Jesus is going to come and there's going to be this division. There are going to be the sheep and the goats, and the sheep will go into the kingdom of God, into eternal life. But then in Matthew 25 and verse 41, Jesus will say to the goats, uh, those people on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, so Satan doesn't own hell. Um, it's not his, it's not his house. It's his punishment as well, included with all of his angels and, and the demons and, and spiritual forces and those that uh, live unrighteous lives and, and, you know, spurn God and things like that. So that, that's an important distinction. It's not like Satan is down, like in the cartoons, cackling in hell over his cauldron. Um, he doesn't want to be there and he's going to be in just as much torment. And, and that kind of existence uh, in this, this judgment makes sense when we begin to define the reality of hell. And, and then you talked about the kingdom What's the alternative? What well, means being outside the kingdom? Means being away from God's rule. Um, where's the first instance we see that? Well, in Genesis three, they went from walking in the garden. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no fear. There's no rivalry. There's, I mean, there's everything was very, very good, and then they sinned and they're cast out from that. And so, mm -hmm. every every evil thing that we see, every. Um, whether it's a moral evil or just a consequence of living in this broken world is the reality of sin. We're talking about heaven, a place where that doesn't happen versus hell, a place where everyone is consumed with that kind of thing. Um, it, it, it's, it's quite the contrast. There's a number of passages, Isaiah 59 talks about how sin separates us from God. If to, to remain eternally separated from God, the giver of all life and love and goodness and joy and peace 
that's hell. Uh, it is the absence of all of those things because we're we're away from God. In Second Thessalonians one, um, it, it talks about the eternal destruction. Verse eight, in flaming fire, where God is going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints. We marvel that among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Um, hell is just the reality of being separated from God. Um, now, it, it, it doesn't mean that God is passively separating himself. I think hell is a choice. We, we choose to go there by rejecting God. We choose not to know him. But there's a sense in which it is just the consequence of being away from God and being separated from him. Scott, you look like you had something you wanted to say. Yeah, I was going to bring up, uh, asking about different passages about it. I just want to share this one from Hebrews. Let's start in Hebrews 10, 26, and then look. I'm just going to read this and a couple other verses from Hebrews. If we sin willfully, if after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and done despite the Spirit of grace. For we know him that said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And then this statement at the end of chapter 12. Our God is a consuming fire. And then one more from back in chapter 6. Interesting statement here uh, where he's warning them about falling away, but he says, I'm for persuaded better things of you. Uh, but in this section, he talked about the earth which drinks in the rain that comes off upon it and brings forth herbs, meat for them whom by distress receives blessings from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. I just think that's a powerful illustration there. Here comes the rain and the sun, all these blessings. And this land, going back to the parable of the sower, brings forth fruit, you know. And, and over here, nothing but thorns and briars. It's going to be burned up. So... Um... There are a number of other passages. Revelation uh, 20 and 21 um, speak more about Satan, even death and Hades being cast into the fire. Every enemy uh, against God's people is, and against God's glory is going to be destroyed. There's a number of other passages we could look at. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what you might say to someone who really has trouble accepting this idea of, of an eternal punishment uh, when they say, but God is good. God is loving. Doesn't God forgive? Doesn't, doesn't he want to save everyone? 
what, what would you say in that kind of conversation, Scott? I'd like to take a few minutes and, and share some slides on that very thing. Because, and honestly, I, I can understand that. I have trouble with that because I, God, well, let me put these slides up here and I think they'll illustrate it. I think a lot of us are not comfortable with the extremity of God's mercy and the extremity of God's judgment. And I think one of the reasons we're not comfortable with it is because we're more comfortable in the middle. Mm -hmm. We've all done some good things, we've all done some bad things, and it makes us more comfortable with gray or the church at Laodicea, which was not hot nor cold, but warm. And with that in mind, I'd like to share these slides. I'm going to run through them just real quickly. This is a sermon, actually, but I'm not going to take time to go through the text. Most of our audience is going to be familiar with them. So just real quickly, um, God's justice and God's grace. His justice involves punishment for sin. His grace includes redemption from sin. We see God described as merciful and gracious, but will by no means clear the guilty. In Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news. But the reason it's good news is because we need it to escape the bad news. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's why we need this good news. Romans 11, note then the kindness and the severity of God. So what is your perception of the mercy of God and the wrath of God? As seen in scripture, does God show mercy slightly, moderately, or intensely? What would you guys say? Intensely. Yeah. yeah. Question number two. As seen in scripture, does God punish slightly, moderately, or intensely? Intensely. Yeah. Yeah. Intensely in both cases. If your view is God is very merciful and a little bit punitive, what happened to Dadab and Abihu when they chose to use fire not authorized, even, even though they're Aaron's sons and Moses' nephew and they're doing an act of religious worship? What did God do to them? They consumed the fire. Yeah. God doesn't need to consult with us. But if God had consulted with you guys and said, hey, I'm looking down there at Nadab and Abihu and in chapter 9, again and again, they did what was commanded. But just now, they did something not commanded. What do you guys think I ought to do? What might you have give, suggested? Give them a warning. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that again. Yeah. And what does God do instead? He makes it so they can't ever do anything again. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, what is Uzzah, what's Uzzah's motive in reaching out to touch the ark? Looks to be like a positive motive, trying to protect it in some way. What happens to Uzzah? He's immediately killed. Yeah, struck dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and, unless somebody say, well, the God in the, the Old Testament was kind of in a bad mood, uh, but then Jesus came and now it's all different. Ananias and Spira, sell a piece of land, give a lot of it uh, uh, for the needy in the church, but lie and hold some of it back. Again, if you'd been consulted, what might you have recommended here for Ananias and Spire? 
make them give well, all of service. It. <laughs> um, what does God do? Immediately struck dead. Yeah. In fact, when does Sapphira find out she's a widow? Right before she dies. Yeah. When Peter says, is this how much you sold the land for? She said, yeah, that's how much. The feet of the men who buried your husband. <laughs> that's when she finds out, we'll bury you. Boom. And then, of course, there's the descriptions of hell. So if somebody's view is God is very merciful, but hardly ever punitive or only slightly so, that just won't wash. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, we can talk about First John and perfect love and how that uh, replaces fear, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, if your view is God is very punitive, I mean, I just looked at those verses and wow, it's almost not merciful at all. Really? Um, what had David done that he was forgiven for? Committed adultery, tried to cover it up. Eventually, um, well, he made the man's wife tried to get drunk so that he could cover up his sin, sent him off to be murdered, and then took his wife like nothing happened. And ends up a number of men, we don't know how many, a number of men get killed. And when David hears about it, they're afraid David will be upset, but he's not. He tell, says, tell Joab not to worry about it. It's not a big deal, basically, I'm paraphrasing. Don't let this thing displease you. It's mm -hmm. one translation of it. Would you, can you imagine how angry we would be if we found out that a president of the United States was having an affair with a Marine's wife, and then to cover it up, he sent that Marine into an area where he knew he would be killed, and some other Marines got killed with him, too? Can you imagine how upset we would be with that? Would we feel that he needs to be in heaven? Uh, who wrote more of the New Testament books than anybody else? Not the longest text, that's Luke, but more of the books than anybody else. Paul. And what were some of the things Paul had been guilty of? Been responsible for uh, capturing and carrying away and killing God's own people. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beating. Imagine if you had watched your father or grandfather be beaten probably here Paul says punished same word when Pilate says let me punish him referring to the scourging um but he's probably giving him the 39 lashes that he himself would later receive from the Jews how can you imagine watching your father or grandfather being given lashes by Paul trying to make him blaspheme or if you were a boy and you saw your mother tied up by Paul and dragged away to prison or saw your brother being sentenced to death and Paul approving of it. And yet he's forgiven and ends up being an apostle and writes a lot of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, the people that are that spat upon Jesus, mocked him, drove in the, the nails and everything, Jesus wanted what for them? Their forgiveness. And one more. Uh, some do any of you know who Jeffrey Dahmer was? Mm-hmm. A serial killer cannibal, wasn't it? Serial killer, uh, uh, pedophile, cannibal, homosexual, killed a number of young men uh, and also cannibalized them. Uh, was caught and went to prison. And shortly before he died, somebody studied with him there in prison. And he asked to be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. Mm -hmm. 
Now, God knows if he was sincere or not. Not long after that, somebody in prison murdered him. But on an emotional level, before we think about what we learn in the spirit, how does our flesh immediately react to the idea of maybe Jeffrey Dahmer getting to go to heaven? If he's there, I don't want to be there. Yeah, but the Bible says God doesn't want anybody to perish, but wishes everyone would repent. Right. And on the cases where God has struck people dead, keep in mind that God knows the heart. But if you're like me, your fleshly instinct would be more comfortable with both less punishment and less mercy. Think about that. This is me. It might not be you. But my fleshly instinct would be more comfortable with less punishment and less mercy. Um, the first time I heard about Jeffrey Dahmer, it, my immediate reaction wasn't, oh, good. You know, I hope to spend eternal life with him. And, but, and so let's bring it down to this. I'm really comfortable with Hitler going to hell. I'm like, that's fine with me. I'm really comfortable with Job getting to go to heaven. But you know what I would also be comfortable with? For the rest of us, having a kind of grade on the curve in between, <laughs> it doesn't have to be as bad as hell, doesn't have to be as good as heaven. Mm -hmm. I'm comfortable with that. Yet in Matthew 25, how many hands does Jesus part them on? The left and the right and it's eternal fire eternal damnation lastly where does the justice and mercy of god meet Jesus. yeah and so in isaiah 53 it was the lord's will to crush him and to see his suffering so in God's mercy, in God's justice, this was the penalty for sin. Jesus didn't have to just humble himself, didn't just have to get arrested, didn't have to just get made fun of. He, get, he got crucified. But in God's mercy, he was willing to send his son to do that, to spare us. And so in Romans 3, the same idea is continued. So note then the kindness and severity of God. May we be humbled and grateful for his mercy and motivated to serve. That's really helpful. Uh, the, the idea that all of this is reflected in Christ at the cross. Mm -hmm. I remember doing a lecture in uh, Boston. There was some time where we did lectures at the public library there at Copley Square and we were talking about the good book. So if the Bible is a good book, why do I read all these things in it? Uh, God's people committed incest. They committed murder. Uh, God gives laws about slavery. And so there are these questions we have about God's morality. And, and if, if uh, the Bible is supposed to be a good book and this is the stuff that's contained in it, what do we do? And I remember in that lecture, we, we talked some about the cross of Christ and comparing God telling Abraham to go sacrifice his son uh, and then God actually following through and sacrificing his son. 
then afterward, this this uh, middle aged couple came up to me and, and said, we, we think you just got that all wrong. Um, Jesus going to the cross was really just showing how much he loved us, that he was willing to die for us. It had nothing to do with punishment or judgment of sin uh, or atoning for any wrongdoing. God was just saying, I love you this much. I said, well, well, why was the death necessary? And they said, well, we, God, God was just making a grand demonstration of his love. I, I think Which, that's missing the point. Yeah, but he missed it. Was, it. But it, like, why was it necessary that Jesus die? Um, it said the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Yeah. The chastisement there, it's the same word back in Proverbs where it says, uh, what is it? He that spares the rock uh, hates the child, mm. but he that chastens him diligently, but he that loves him chastens him diligently. Yeah. And, and translation. Yeah translated as punish there pardon me yeah I, no no that's, that's good it's, it's um I, I don't think we appreciate uh even those of us who remember jesus weekly together in communion where we're, we're thinking about the body of christ and the blood of christ and the sacrifice that saves us um timothy keller has this quote where he says unless you believe in hell you will never know how much jesus loves you uh, I, I think that's that's an, an incredibly important point for us to to grasp is when when we try to reject hell out of some motivation to maintain God is good and gracious, we end up gutting His grace and goodness, and we belittle His love because He loves us so much He's saving us from hell. Mm -hmm. and so we need to keep that judgment in the picture because one, it, it shows us what He saved us from, but two, hell is a rescue. Uh, in a sense, because when when he sends all the wicked to hell and then saves his people, there's no, not going to be any more sin in the world. There's not going to be any more uh, suffering and death. Like the, the last enemy is going to be destroyed. Like, can you imagine being in a paradise with God forever? And he says, all right, this is great. We're all here together for eternity. Just stay out of that area over there. There are some bad people that hang out you know, past 11 o'clock. That wouldn't be the heaven I would imagine. That that sounds like you're still living in a bit of fear and terror. God says there's not going to be any of that in heaven. Mm -hmm. And if if we are frustrated with some of the things that God is revealing about Himself or the nature of of I don't know. You don't want to say the nature of the world if you're talking about hell. Hell's outside the world. But the nature of, of what God has made, um, it shouldn't surprise us if there are some aspects of it that, that are unsettling or hard for us to understand or hard for, for, for us to do the math of, does that make sense? Um, do I think it's right? Um, you know, there, there's, there are a number of things um, that, that will be confusing for me to understand and fathom. Um, and it's partly because God's bigger than me, and he made things that are bigger than I can see and, and, and exist even though I can't see them. And um, reality is that which, even when I stop believing in it, it's still there. And so if I don't believe that hell is as hellish as the Bible is trying to tell me, that that's my belief, but but the realities of of what the good book is trying to tell us um, are are still true and are still there, and 
we just need to do our best to try to understand what is being revealed, not try to explain back at the book what we think the revelations get wrong. Yeah. On, on that, I, I think that's, that's helpful because the fact is that while I've been saved from sin and I've been redeemed and I'm not what I was, because I participated in sin, I'm a little, kind of like Scott was saying, I'm, I'm a little sympathetic towards sin. And my ideas about justice have been warped because I've committed injustice. So to expect me to understand the, the goodness of punishment and judgment for eternity, I've made, I've sort of made myself incapable of that. And I really need to recuse myself from judging God for judging the wicked. Uh, I, I think I need to be careful about that, realize that I, I have, I've made it difficult for myself to understand those sorts of things. Yeah. I, I used to work with guys in jail and um, their perception of reality is not always spot on. <laughs> you know, if, if, if you ask criminals how bad crime is, they're, I mean, don't say, now this crime, they're, that, that's really, really, really bad. You know, that pedophile over in cell block C or something. But if you ask law-abiding people, their view, or you know, if you ask an innocent old lady who's never committed a crime, her view of crime, she's got a different view of crime than the criminals do. She would say everybody in that prison deserves to be there. Um, and that's one of the things, when we, when we rightly understand hell, when we teach hell, I, what it does for me is it, it motivates me to want to talk to people about Jesus more. Uh, I, I deserved it. I, I do deserve it. Uh, I bet Jesus has saved me. He's cleansed me. Uh, and there are people out here that are headed in that direction unless they know about the Lord. And so I need to teach them. So hell should be a big motivator. And again, in Romans, right after that famous verse, for the gospel, the good news, is God's power to save those that will put their trust in Christ. Two verses later is the reason, because it's not that good a news without understanding the bad news. That's right. He's going to spend almost three chapters going over the bad news before he returns to the solution in late chapter three. Yeah. Or the wrath of God is revealed against all. So maybe, maybe if we taught people more about hell in this kind of thorough, loving, uh, right display of the gospel, um, sometimes we think, well, if we just love people more, they'll believe the gospel. <laughs> well, loving means showing sin, and it means warning of judgment, and that's part of the package, as Paul demonstrates in Romans. It's good. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think really anybody enjoys putting on a seatbelt. I, I, you know, it just doesn't strike me as a moment where you feel like, oh, this just feels like the car is hugging me. No, seatbelt is, is something that's restricting you and it's holding you back and it means you can't reach back and grab something off the back seat or if you're sitting in the back, you can't reach for, into the front. So if you're trying to explain to someone why they should wear a seatbelt without telling them about the dangers of car crashes, there, there's no, it will never make sense. Why would I want something that is restricting me? I want to have all the liberties in this car that I can possibly have. I want to sit upside down and stick my feet out the window. Well, <laughs> I don't want you to know that cars are dangerous. You just have to know that seatbelts are really good. 
that doesn't make any sense. Um, there's no motivation. There's no, um, there's no logic. Even if you've never ever seen a car crash, but you've heard that they exist, that's enough intellectual information to think it's worth it to wear a seatbelt. Mm -hmm. Good, helpful. Well, is, is that about all the time we have for today? There's a lot more passages we could look at and uh, concerns, but. I still have a few more, few more minutes. One thing that I wanted to uh, just mention as well, the, the question I think that we kind of started with in this discussion was, if God is so good, how could he send people to hell? Um, and I think the, that's just kind of a wrong perception because God says multiple times he doesn't want to. Um, and he doesn't take pleasure in it. So like we referenced Second Peter chapter 3, um, that God doesn't wish that anyone should perish, but all should come to repentance. But I really like how he words it in Ezekiel 33, when he's speaking to Ezekiel and kind of charging him to be the watchman of Israel. And his, his job is to tell them uh, that judgment is coming, they need to repent and, and turn. Um, and God says, as part of that message, tell them Ezekiel 33 verse 11, um, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn back from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways for why will you die? O house of Israel. Um, and so God says like, it doesn't make me happy when you're living in wickedness and then receive punishment. Um, you know, God, God wants people to return and turn back. And that's just the consistent message that God constantly gives um, throughout time. Yeah. Scott, your mic is muted. We had a comment, uh, Justin, as you were describing the people who said, no, Jesus was just demonstrating how much he loves us. He, he's not being punished for us. That's a popular theory uh, right now. And if the audience would be interested, we could go over that theory. And, and sometimes it gets lost in semantics and they'll use a bunch of big phrases to describe a theory. Phrases that I've never used, but I've used Isaiah 53 a lot. And one time in a discussion online, uh, some preachers were arguing different ways. And I put the text of Isaiah 53 up there. I said, I don't care if you ever use these other words or not. Here's, and I said, can I get an amen? And the people holding the others, they would not amen it. I think one guy finally, finally did after somebody said, you can't amen that. And he, he had a really strange comment, but maybe he finally amen. <laughs> The text of Isaiah 53, uh, powerful text there. And if we've got one minute left, I think we do. I'd like to just throw this up as well. We mentioned um, that. Let me see if I've got it shared. You know what? I'm not sure it's shared. Yeah, I think we're out of time. So it didn't go up. So, Jonathan, you want to wrap, wrap us up? Well, can I just. So say, say this real quick and um, <laughs> jump in. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say, you know, First Peter 2, and there's some other passages that come to mind. Um, First Peter 2 talks about that, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I don't think that teaches that Jesus became a sinner, but there there is a weight to sin. There's a consequence to sin and mm -hmm. hell is that judgment is that consequence jesus paid the price he bore the weight he was treated as guilty 
so that we would not be. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians, um, there's, there's a, a statement about um, hmm. well, are you looking for Corinthians chapter? Go ahead. Yes, in Corinthians 5, where he says uh, in verse uh, 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That sounds really good. That sounds very loving. Um, But how does he do that? Well, verse 19, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Well, it doesn't say not counting their trespasses. It says not counting their trespasses against them. He mm-hmm. still has to count them. And so he still has to judge them and punish them. And that's, that's what you see in the cross on, on, uh, with Christ on the cross. So in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. Um, so again, the quote from Timothy Keller, I think is helpful. Unless you believe in hell, you'll never know how much Jesus loves you. The reality of judgment against our rebellion against God uh, draws me closer. The more I understand of God's wrath, the more impressed I am with his love. Uh, and so hell is not a teaching I think we should shy away from. I think it's something that works hand in glove with the teaching of heaven and God's grace. Yeah. Thanks for pausing for me. Great. All right. Well, thank you guys for your discussion in that today. Uh, thank you to our audience for tuning in. If you have any more questions about that or uh, any questions about the sacrifice of Jesus or anything related to those topics uh, or otherwise, any other Bible questions you'd like us to answer you can submit those to biblequest.tv and we'll be happy to do those in our future shows. Um, Scott, do you want to put one more thing in before we wrap up? Oh, okay, great. That was a thumbs up. I just saw the finger, so I wasn't sure if it was the, there you go. Um, All right, well, that's all that we have for this week, so we will plan on seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.